But good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Um, greetings to all those that have joined us in person and online. Um, I know with the weather, we have a few extra folks joining us that way, and so it's good that you're joining us um, however you are able. Um, we continue in our sermon series about seeing Jesus and seeing God. This is our Epiphany series where each week we're looking, maybe asking questions about what does Jesus reveal to us about who God is? Um, and this week, the question that is the sermon title, the question is, what does God say? And this is an important question, right? Like, we've wrestled with that, I think, um, as individuals, but as, as church, as, as people in a nation, right? What is it that God is saying? What is true? How do you know? Those types of things. Um, and, and this is an important question because we've all witnessed, especially over the last year or so, how having differences of opinions can create some pretty strong conflicts, right? That having a difference of opinion may actually get you labeled as an enemy. And we've, it seems like over the past several years, we've maybe gotten quicker to, to throw that enemy label on people. Um, but in, in a lot of the core, it's just a difference of opinion or a different understanding of things. But um, in Jesus's day, um, rabbis and scholars and scribes, they would debate uh, scripture teachings. They would get together and, and argue about what their Torah said, how to apply it, what it means. But it was viewed as a good thing. In, in, in Jesus' day, the debate was viewed as a way of digging deeper to the truth. That as the differences of opinions kind of were presented, that they exposed the weak points in one argument or one idea, and it made both arguments stronger. And so the, the rabbis in those days would, would view debate um, and differences of opinion as, as a healthy part of the community. And in fact, that, that tradition still kind of lives on in uh, Jewish uh, culture today. Um, and they talked about it like turning a gem. Like you take the scripture and you, you look at it from a lot of different angles, and every way you turn it, you see something a little bit different, right? The light shines out a little bit differently. And so that was their, their understanding of, of Scripture. was like it was turning a gem and seeing it from a, just a slightly different perspective. And the light shines through it just a little bit differently. So back in Jesus' day, a little bit before Jesus was born, there was these two rabbis, really well-known rabbis, um, named Hillel and Shammai. Has anybody heard of these guys? They're kind of popular in rabbis' circles. I don't know. Anyways, I've... Hillel and Shammai were, were two prominent rabbis, and, and then they had followers that uh, kind of carried on their viewpoints, and it became the house of Hillel and, and the house of Shammai, or the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. But basically, that is students that, that took their viewpoints and kind of developed it further. And so even after these rabbis died, you could still pe hear people talking about Hillel and Shammai as an approach to reading scripture or approach to understanding the Torah. And just to give a little bit of a picture about some of the things that Hillel and Shammai debated and that the, the students debated. Um, so Shammai, the school of Shammai, believed that only worthy students should be admitted to study Torah. So to get into the Torah studying program at your local school, you should have to test at a certain level, right? Um, Merit-based admission to, to study the Torah. Well, Hillel and his school believed that Torah could be taught to anyone, and that the expectation was that as you were taught the law, um, you would repent and become worthy, right? So there was two different approaches. Only the best could get into 
into the school of Halal, and Shalmai said, if we teach you this, you will become the best, right? So um, another example of what they debated about, and again, these are Hillel and Shammai, this is not me debating these things, just to clear things up. Um, they would argue about white lies. So the example that they debated over is whether one should tell a bride who was deemed ugly that she was beautiful. Right? Again, their words, not mine, um, but this was the debate. Shammai said it was wrong to lie. And so... Hillel said that all brides are beautiful on their wedding day. So this was the debate. Do you, you, if there's an ugly bride, do you tell her she looks beautiful or not? Um, and they debated over this. But the point wasn't brides and weddings. The point was the command to tell the truth, which is, which is more important, right? To, anyways, I'm not going to dig any holes here. But uh, moving on. Uh, divorce was another debate uh, within these, between these two schools. Um, Shammai said that a man may only divorce his wife for a serious transgression, but Hillel and his school said divorce was allowed for even trivial offenses, including um, if the meal got burnt. You could divorce, a guy could divorce his wife if the meal got burnt. And so they would debate uh, about that. Again, these were their rules. I'm not in this conversation. Um, Or even on Hanukkah, right? So Shammai... And if you're not familiar with Hanukkah, it involves lighting eight candles, right? Um, Shammai said that the first night, all eight candles should be lit. And then the second night, only seven candles should be lit until you get down to the last night and there's only one candle left. Now, Hillel, and if you're picking up a pattern here, you probably know that he said, let's light one candle the first night, two this next night, three. And at the end, you have eight candles lit. And they both had deep theological reasons for why they thought what they thought. Um, And then the last one that they would debate that I'll I'll share with you, they obviously debated everything, as you can tell. But the last thing we'll talk about this morning is um, saying the prayer, saying grace after a meal. Shammai says that if you have a meal and you forget to say the prayer after the meal, and then you realize it, you need to go back to wherever you ate the meal and say that prayer in the exact location that you ate the meal. Hillel said, as soon as you realize um, you forgot to say the prayer, you should stop right where you are and say the prayer right then and there, and the location doesn't matter. But like I said, these guys would debate about everything, um, but they saw this as good. They didn't see each other as enemies. They weren't trying to defeat the, each other. They were learning from each other, and their arguments got stronger. Their understanding got deeper as they would debate. Uh, like I said, these debates were viewed as a good thing. It's actually written down um, that they, they said that these debates were for the sake of heaven. Now, I don't know how to interpret that, but obviously they thought it was a good thing um, because they were trying to get to the truth of God. That was their core goal. They, they weren't trying to be right. They were trying to get to the truth of who God is. It was from this desire to know God, to understand God, and to follow the word of God that drove this. They weren't trying, like, I said, they weren't trying to win an argument or defeat somebody else. They were trying to understand who God was. That was the most important motivation here. And these debates, while they did lots of other things, they proved the point that the rabbis themselves didn't claim ultimate authority on the scriptures. The scribes and the the scholars, they never said, this is what God's definitive answer is on divorce or God's definitive answer on 
um, you know, one to say the grace if you forgot to say it. Like, <clears throat> it was a, a clear point that they were not speaking with the authority of God. They were questioners. They were interrogating the word, trying to figure out what it was that God was saying. Um, God's word had not been made perfectly clear to them, and so they would dig and dig and ask questions, trying to get to the, the truth that was in God's word. But there was still this mystery or this hidden nature to God's word. And then <clears throat> our scripture for today, Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. And I want to see as we read through this, if you um, start to pick up on, uh, on something uh, about Jesus as he speaks in the scripture. Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. Uh, they went to Capernaum. Um, Jesus and his group. And when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. That's Jesus entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astounded at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed. And they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching? With authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding regions of the Galilee. This is the word of God for the people of God, and our response is, thanks be to God. Pray with me, if you will. Father, we are grateful for this story in the life of Jesus. Uh, may the scripture uh, be quickened to life today by the presence of your Holy Spirit. May our ears be attuned to hear what it is that you have to say to us. And just like the rabbi uh, from eons ago, from years ago, um, our motivation, our desire is to hear what you have to say. We just ask that you would bless this time and use it to make us more like your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So just like last week, our, our story is in the gospel of Mark. Um, and like I said last week, Things happen fast in the Gospel of Mark. Like, he doesn't have time to, to flesh out a whole bunch of details. Um, I mean, we're still in chapter 1 in the Gospel of Mark. We're only 21 verses in, and we've already got Jesus teaching in the synagogues. There's no Christmas. There's no Jesus getting uh, taken to the temple. There's no Jesus, you know, getting lost. Like, all the other stories of Jesus' childhood, Mark doesn't have that. He just starts out, Jesus is an adult, he's baptized, and boom, he's off doing things. Um, so we're still in the first chapter, and Jesus is already teaching in the synagogue. But before we jump into what's happening in this particular story, we may need a little bit of background about what synagogues were. Um, growing up in the, in the church reading scriptures, like, I think I had an idea of what I thought synagogues were, but then there was this temple, and I was like, well, which is it? Like, in my mind, I was trying to equate, which one is the church, right? Is temple church? Is synagogue church? What's going on here? Um, but synagogue literally means gathering of people, just gathering of people. That's where the word comes from. And 
in synagogues in these communities, they would teach school in them. There would be community meals and celebrations that would happen there. Um, there would be temporary shelter in the synagogues if, if it was needed. People could, could kind of stay there. Um, Jewish religious life was still centered in the temple in Jerusalem until 70 AD when it was, it was destroyed. Um, so at the time of Jesus, the temple was still the center of religious life and religious power. But these synagogues were, were scattered in all these different villages and communities, and they were kind of like community centers. Um, so if you went to a religious service in the synagogue to hear a rabbi teach, it was out of a desire um, to, to learn more, or it was out of curiosity about uh, what this rabbi was going to teach, and not so much a religious obligation. You're not going to find it in the laws anywhere demanding that you go to synagogue. Um, and so these people went to hear what these rabbis would say and what they would debate and what they would argue about or to hear the scriptures read just as like a midweek devotional or something. Um, they, these people that were there were, were the Bible nerds like me. At least that's the way I, I picture it. Like they just, you know, went, hey, what are we going to watch tonight? Let's turn on a documentary about Jesus. Like that's, they're the nerdy type. This is in my mind. And they go to hear rabbis like Hillel and Shammai and others talk about the Torah they wanted to hear how the Torah could be interpreted. But on the day that they went uh, in this scripture, they were in for a surprise. In these few short verses, Mark tells us twice that the crowd was amazed and astonished by Jesus. They were amazed by the way he taught with authority. So early on in that story, he's teaching and they're like, wow, this is, he's teaching with authority, not like the scribes, right? Like he's, he's teaching with authority. Who is this guy, right? And then they were amazed by the way he cast out the demon. And again, Mark says he cast it out with authority. And they were amazed and astonished. And so the word authority is critically important in this story. There were rabbis and scribes and experts in the Torah and how to interpret, and they spoke in the synagogue regularly. But Jesus shows up and he spoke differently. He didn't offer an opinion. He didn't offer an interpretation from one of the rabbinic schools of thought. No, Jesus spoke with authority. While others debated possible understandings of the Torah, the teaching, possible ways to interpret the law, Jesus defined it. He clarified it. He revealed it. And then this demon-possessed man caused a commotion, and Jesus cast out that demon using his authority. So they ask, who can teach the scriptures with authority and who can cast out demons with authority? This was unique to Jesus. Only he could do this. In another gospel, in the gospel of John, it begins chapter one by saying, you know, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, right? And Jesus being that word became flesh and walked amongst men, right? Like walked in the world, moved into the neighborhood, like lived amongst people. The Gospel of John begins by declaring that Jesus is the Word of God made flesh, but Mark begins by revealing that when Jesus spoke, the words of God are spoken. The words that Jesus speaks are the words of God. That's how Mark is setting the context for this entire Gospel. In a few weeks, we're going to be looking at a, at a text where God speaks from heaven and says, 
about Jesus. This is my son. Listen to him. Because when he speaks, he speaks the words of God. Jesus speaks with the authority of God, and therefore we should listen to him and do what he says. Because when Jesus speaks, he's speaking the very words of God. The rabbis spent hours and hours debating, trying to get to the truth, trying to understand what is it that God is saying. And, and today we spend time in prayer. I know when um, we were going through the process of being called to pastor here, your church was praying, you know, our church was praying, um, God, speak to us. Show us who to call. Um, it was a sense of communal uh, looking to God to hear what God's voice was. And, and my family, we were asking the same question. What is God saying to us right now? And it's sometimes hard to get that moment of clarity as you go through that process. But when Jesus speaks, he reveals that word perfectly. These are the very words of God. And one of the great things about Jesus is that he not only taught about God, he didn't just teach information about what God was like or what God was doing, um, or how God intended people to live even. He didn't just teach that, he lived it. He lived how God intended people to live. And so that means to obey the teachings of Jesus is to live the way that Jesus lived. He is a teacher who is also the example. There's an integrity to his message. He didn't tell his disciples to do one thing and then you see him doing something else. If you ever have questions about how do we interpret what Jesus was saying? Just look at how he lived. He reveals God in the Torah and in the teachings, but he also reveals God through the way he lived. So not only do we benefit from what Jesus did as our Savior, we are called to obey the words Jesus spoke as our Lord. I've been spending a lot of time in reflection and analyzing, like, it's one of my favorite ways of engaging the world is watching and listening. Um, and one of the things I've recently become more aware of is that we speak of Christian more as a noun today um, than it seems like before. I am a Christian, we will say. That term is, is an indication of which team I'm on, which group I'm a part of, which, uh, you know, way do I identify. I'm not an atheist. I'm not a Muslim. I celebrate Christmas and Easter. Like, I'm a Christian. If you surveyed the, you know, the mass population in the U.S., they'll all say, I am a Christian. Eighty-some percent, 83 percent or higher identify as a Christian. Um, I believe in God. Like I said, I celebrate Christmas. I'm not a Muslim. I'm not an atheist. So that makes me a Christian. But the Jesus of the Bible wasn't asking us to pick a side and then to cheer it on. Not to say, identify with the team and then root your team on and, and know that it's going to win. Jesus spoke with authority and with the very words of God, he instructed his followers how to live. As we said last week, following Jesus is about choosing who is going to teach you, who is going to shape you, who is going to form you. Choosing who you follow is choosing who you're going to become. And so this week, I want to redefine the word Christian. Uh, I think I made a slide for this. Um, yeah. So I said a moment ago that Christian has become a noun. I am a Christian. But my invitation for us today is to start to see Christian as an adjective. 
A word that describes behaviors and attitudes that resemble Jesus Christ. It's, it's, it describes um, the way that somebody lives or the behavior or an attitude that they have, right? Um, Christian is an adjective that means Christ-like. Because I don't know about you, but I would much rather somebody say about me, oh, he is Christian, <laughs> that guy is Christian, Christ-like, rather than them say, that guy is a Christian, I'd much rather be identified as being like Jesus than just being labeled as part of a group. The church today receives quite a bit of criticism. I mean, you're aware of this. Right? Like, I don't think this is surprising. Like, if you talk to non-Christians, you talk to people kind of outside of the church circles, um, the church receives quite a bit of criticism. And, and some of that can be attributed to just the fact that it's really hard to understand faith in Jesus when you're outside of it. Like, it's... It's one of those things that, as you experience it, it makes more sense to you, right? Um, and so there's some of that, that people criticize things that they don't understand. They fear things that they don't understand. Um, and so that's where some of that, that criticism comes from. But some of that criticism is actually well-deserved. Um, Christians have, have joined Team Jesus as a way to get to heaven in the future, but some want to listen to someone other than Jesus call the plays here and now. Christians celebrate and love Jesus as their Savior, but some Christians resent and reject Jesus as their Lord. Some of us want to be a Christian, the noun, but do not want to be Christian, an attitude that or an adjective that describes our behaviors as aligning with the life and teachings of Jesus. We often or sometimes desire the status of being the chosen people of God without the responsibility and mission of doing what we were chosen to do. And I might be stepping on toes, and that's not my intention this morning. This is coming from a deep place of pastoral concern, not just for people in this particular congregation, but the church at large. Jesus speaks with authority so that the, the gathered faithful understand what God is saying to them and so that the demon-possessed are set free from their bondage. This is why Jesus spoke. And if there ever was a doubt or any questions about what God wants you to do or how God wants you to live or who God wants you to love, Jesus makes it clear. He speaks. And those who listen hear the words of God, the teaching of God. The words of life. And yet, as I grew up in the church, as I went into to school to prepare for pastoral ministry, and as I have pastored, um, I've oftentimes been surprised by how little attention and time we've given to the teachings of Jesus. And again, I'm not trying to pick on Battle Creek first. I'm still trying to get to know you guys, so this isn't, <laughs> this isn't personal at all. Um, in fact, I've become more aware about all the reasons that the church culture provides so why we don't actually have to follow the teachings of Jesus. And this may sound harsh, it may sound critical, but I'm going to read through uh, some of the very direct teachings of Jesus. And these aren't cherry-picked, this is just me. I did a search for uh, commands of Jesus. I'm just going to read through some of them. We'll start out in the Sermon on the Mount, and this may feel a little bit tedious. But as we read through them, Ask yourself, do I resist these? Do I see other 
Christians resisting these? Is this even a standard that we try to live up to? Um, so there's quite a few, and I, I want to read these. But these, again, are starting with the assumption that when Jesus speaks words, he speaks the words of God. That's what it means that he speaks with authority. And so he says, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Rejoice when you are persecuted for following him. He says, Let your light shine by doing good deeds. He said, Teach God's law that was given to Moses and the prophets. He said, Do not be angry with your brothers or sisters. Do not insult others by calling them fools. Be reconciled with the one who offended you. Be reconciled with the one you offended. Do not covet a married woman. Repent from sin by cutting off the temptation. Don't say more than yes or no to prove you are truthful. Do not retaliate against evil persons who strike you. Sacrifice beyond what others demand you give. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Be perfect. Give in secret and not where others can see you giving. Do not pray alone in public where others can see you. Do not pray repetitious prayers. Do not lay up treasures on earth. Seek above all God's kingdom and God will provide. Do not judge by standards that you yourself cannot meet. Do not cast pearls before mockers who are not listening. Be persistent in prayer. Ask, seek, and knock. Do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. Choose the narrow way that leads to life. Beware of false prophets who have signs and wonders but work lawlessness. Jesus said a lot of things. We've got a few more to go. Um, pray God sends co-laborers to spread good news. Fear God, not man. Take my yoke, which means his training, upon you, which means to obey. Do not blaspheme God's name, for it is unpardonable. Honor your parents. Beware the Pharisees who minimize law to tithing and issuing of commands and that don't actually do anything. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Repent from sin and turn in deep sorrow for justification. Despise not the weak and vulnerable like the little children. Beware of covetousness. Life is not in the abundance of what you have. Forgive those who wrong you, even if you keep wronging even if they keep wronging you over and over. Never seek to rule over other believers. Be a people producing fruit or you will not receive the kingdom. Invite to meals those who are poor, who are sick, and so on. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Render to God what is God's. Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, and soul. Praise, honor, and worship the name of, of God. Make the name of God known to fulfill the will of Christ in his prayer to the Father. Love your neighbor. Call no man father or teacher. Try to understand my message, and more understanding will be given. If you don't, what little understanding you have will be taken away. Be born again. If you keep me, or if you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus says, watch and pray. Feed my sheep. Baptize my disciples. Teach the nations, which means people. Teach all people everything that I have commanded you. Receive God's power. Make disciples of all nations. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. Now, there's more. I'm going to stop. 
because <laughs> that's a lot. And I'm not trying to do the whole teachings of Jesus in, in 10 minutes or something like that. But Jesus tells us very directly, this is the point that I'm trying to get at. He teaches us very directly what it means to be Christian. What it means to be like Jesus. And if we want to, we can always find a reason or an excuse not to obey, not to be faithful to these very direct commands. And I know obey is a tough word, in our, especially in our culture. Like, there's authority, there's positions of, of, of superiority even assumed when you start talking about obey. Like, I know what's good for you. And so obey is a tough word. We love Jesus. We are grateful for Jesus. We know we need Jesus. But do we obey Jesus? He teaches us with authority if we believe he is who he says he is then our response should align with that. And so this is where the story of the Good Samaritan comes from. Many of us are familiar with that. Um, that's, Jesus tells that story when somebody asks him for clarification, for understanding, for, for a final authority on what it means uh, to follow God. Right? What is the law that is the most important? What is the command? What is the most important teaching? And Jesus kind of turns it around on him and he says, what do you think? And the man says, love God with all your you know, heart, soul, strength, mind, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, yep, that's, that's it. You got it. You understand. This is what God wants from you. And the man, it says, wanting to justify himself, wanting to um, get <laughs> pushed it a little bit further because this just seems a lot to do. Um, the man wanted to know who his neighbor was because there was just some people he didn't want to love. There was just some, some people he didn't want to, to put on the same level as himself. He didn't want to love these people as himself. Or another story of the rich young ruler who wanted to enter into the kingdom of God and so he asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? What must I do to get this life in the kingdom, this life with God? And Jesus said, go sell all you have and give the money to the poor. And pretty straightforward. He got the answer to the question that he was asking. But the Bible tells us he left sad. Because he wasn't going to do what Jesus asked him to do. The Bible itself can be used to dilute or confuse the words of Jesus to lessen the impact of his message. Uh, at one point in recent history relative to 2,000 years of Christian history, but um, the Bible was used by slave owners and sympathizers to support slavery. The Bible was used by evil and ambitious men to support the Holocaust and Nazi uh, warfare. The Bible has been used by powerful and cruel men to suppress voices of women and children who have endured abuse. But Jesus is the one who speaks with authority. He is the one we must listen to. He is the one who teaches us. He is the one that we must submit to and obey. So in this culture that has many teachers, many authorities, many teachings about who God is and what God has to say, know the words of Jesus and commit to following them. And that's what this whole thing was about. And in fact, I think I made a slide. This is what this, all this buildup, all the reading of the words of Jesus really brings us to this point. As Christians, as the church, as followers of Jesus, 
as the world is filled with lots of voices and lots of opinions and lots of thoughts about what we should do, if we want to know what God is saying, we have to know the words of Jesus and commit to following them. And if that happens, if we commit to do that as individuals, but also as a community of believers, then we may be known not just as Christians, but as Christians as Christ-like disciples of Jesus. The, the world out there doesn't need to know which team you're on. They need to know Jesus. And so the words of Jesus are out there. They're in the Gospels for us to read clearly. And as I read through that list this morning, Jesus was direct. He was blunt. He was straight to the point. Our goal, our purpose, is to know the words of Jesus and commit to following. And like I said, we will be known then, not just as Christians, but as Christian. When people see us and when they encounter us, they will be seeing and encountering Jesus. So I'm going to invite the the worship team to come, and I'm going to pray a prayer as they come. And you can use this time as a a moment of response, of prayer, of, I don't know, maybe you're frustrated with me for some of the things I said, but, um, or this could be a time of reflection, a time of listening, however you may want it to be. But pray with me, if you will. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, in deed, by what we have done and also by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves, and for that we are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, God, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Father, may we be Christian. May our attitudes and our behaviors Reflect Jesus to the world. People need to know what you have to say. And we, as your disciples, have been given the mission of sharing that good message, of sharing that good news. So empower us, equip us, give us the courage to walk in faithful obedience to which we've been called. It's in your son's name we pray.